Hello, and welcome to the Des Bishop Podcast. It's great to be back Thursday afternoon here in the lovely Hayfield Manor Hotel in Cork City. I'm only steps from the university that I went to, that I attended as a young man from the years of 1994 to 1998, University College Cork. It's actually the second episode uh, in the last few months of the Des Bishop podcast that has been recorded here at the Hayfield. Currently, I'm in a different room to the the last room I was in, chatting about where I was at 10 months since my mom died. I mean, it was really only, was it six, seven weeks ago? Um... I was gigging in West Cork at that time, and it was the early days of uh, of Mia Mama, and I was dealing with all that, which has uh, remained somewhat difficult, I have to say, doing the show and the emotions it builds up uh, today for some reason being tougher than normal, but that's not, uh, that's not what today's episode is about. Um, today's episode is an interview with Brian O'Connell who, coincidentally enough, I know from attending UCC together, we were in class together in first year, first year history, uh, and then I repeated first year, which we discussed quickly, and then uh, I got to know Brian more in, in, in more recent years as a result of, uh, well, Brian got into the media himself. He's currently a contributor, RT Radio 1, does uh, field pieces for the Sean O'Rourke show, but... um. I got to know him better as a result of him giving up booze uh, a number of years ago, and he wrote he wrote a book about it. And actually, I I did it. He interviewed people that that didn't drink. I I did an interview for that book, and uh, he then contributed to Under the Influence, which I did in two thousand and twelve, um, which was about Ireland's relationship with alcohol. So we sort of reconnected professionally, but also through the fact that we both didn't drink. And now, usually, when I'm in Cork. We'd meet up and have a chat. He's a, he's a great, he really is a great conversationalist, to be honest with you. And we have very deep chats, uh, sometimes about booze, sometimes about life and him, his life as a parent. Sometimes we talk about, you know, the male experience, which we didn't talk about today only because myself and Steve have been talking about it so much. So we ended up having a wonderful discussion, uh, Firstly, we chatted quickly about his most recent book, which was called uh, The Personals, which I thought was an amazing idea where he uh, he found stories through uh, personal ads that he would see in the paper, which I'll let him describe because it's the first thing that we talk about. Uh, we, we quickly discussed the personals and how all these personal ads were, were a window or a doorway, as he says, into people's lives. Uh, which Brian is very good at. He's good at capturing people's lives, and he's he's good at helping them to tell their stories on the radio. Uh, but it also helps him to gather up a lot of stories and also get a better understanding of himself. And uh, it just so happens that yesterday when I interviewed him, he had just finished uh, doing uh, recording for RTE at Marymount Hospice, interviewing people who knew that they were going to die. Uh, which of course death is a a big you know a big part of uh 
what's going on in my life these days. I think a lot about death. Uh, so I was delighted to uh, to delve a bit into that, what he what he picked up from there. And, well, it took us down a road I wasn't expecting to go about grief, but uh, Brian's grief around losing a friend from suicide. So we, we talk about that for quite a bit. And uh, we finish off the, the chat, sort of checking in on where we're both at with the the non-drinking all these years later. And it's a, it's a good, it's a good chat about life. And, uh, I hope you enjoy it. Um, nothing much else to say other than I'm looking forward to my show tonight in the Everman Thursday night. Uh, if you happen to catch this in the next hour or two, come along Friday and Saturday are sold out. And, uh, if you're looking to see me and mama Limerick and Wexford next week, and then in the Project Arts Center in Dublin, if the whole country hasn't shut down by then because of the coronavirus. Feckin' doctor came back from Italy and went went to work. Of course, it's causing a bit of panic. I'd be lying if I didn't think I didn't say I was panicked myself. But I'll just put that out there. Anyway, here's a great chat with Brian O'Connell, and I'll talk to you after the episode. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Brian O'Connell, former UCC classmate of mine. You're, you're, I, I haven't had that I many... I lectured you for a while. Not lectured you, but tutored you. Yeah, because what happened, what happened was uh, I was... Uh, you had, had to great, stay back a year. Not a great student in first year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I repeated first year. Anyway, yeah. So, did, oh, you were my history uh, tutor. History tutor. I, I finished the arts degree, repeated sociology in first year, came back from America to do the bloody exam, and uh, then did a master's in history. So, as part of that, for the first year, you had to lecture or tutor, uh, and uh, you were it was core history or something. I remember you being in the class core history I had to correct like hundreds of S's and I just remember correcting them in Sissy Young's bar at about three in the afternoon <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that should I? I never typed I never typed the first thing I typed in college was my dissertation for history everything else was handwritten really it's hard to believe isn't now. it like I'm, I'm walking by I don't want to bore our listeners too much but I'm walking by uh, College Road there yesterday and every time I do I think of the history department. So I don't know if it's there anymore. I know it's still down here on Parrot Avenue, but the one on the College Road was where we used to get the off prints. Amazing. It's hard to imagine that there was a time where you had to go to the history department to get uh, official photocopies of books that you couldn't get in the library. And the big thing to have was a card that would allow you print material off. And you'd get a, if, when you got a postgrad, then you'd get a certain limit. You might have 300 credits a week or something, so you could print off 300 times a week. I mean, it's so mental to think about it now, isn't it? I mean, yeah. like, I actually don't even know how we learned. Not to mention, I don't know how these people are getting the same qualifications as we did, because what we did was way more difficult. Yeah. <laughs> like, our degrees, our degrees should be considered of a higher level, because we had to... You know, like we had to source all this information. Like I remember doing my history dissertation, which was on female emigration 
from Ireland, 1866 to 1886, from Queenstown. Yeah, yeah. Oh. That had the employers queuing up. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but like, I had to go, I sat in the Cork Public Library on Grand Parade, like for ages, like trying to find source material about women leaving Ireland between 1866 and 1886. Yeah. Because that was the, 1866 was the first year that more women than men left Ireland. Yeah. So anyway, welcome to the show. For those that don't know Brian O'Connell, most importantly, you've just had your, your, your latest book out, The Personals, right? It's the most Thanks important we yeah. get the promo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good crack. I good haven't read crack. them all, but it's good crack. It's like a fun... Yeah, it's just like uh, I've always been fascinated in classified ads. Yeah. And uh, there's, a, there's a whole canon of literature of people fascinated by classified ads and getting stories from them. And I've got stories from them. They work really well as radio reports. Why was the wedding dress never worn? Why is someone selling the contents of their house? Why is someone selling an engagement ring? And I go and I tell the story. So I just put a collection of those stories together for the book. And I suppose it's like a snapshot of contemporary Irish life. Yeah, but it's great. That's the pitch. Yeah, but it's great in that you know, you see something like that, like the personals. And I always feel like it's the same way where you're flicking around through Netflix, right? And there's any number of things you could start watching. But every time you see the title, you think, ah, I can't be bothered. But the minute you start watching, you get sucked in. And I felt that way with your book too. Every story was like, I just can't be bothered. But the minute you start reading, you go, this is fascinating. Yeah, Somebody's quite- life has represented through this this personal ad. Yeah, and I suppose for me, just seeing those two lines of texts in an Echo newspaper... And then going from that... Oh, that was the... that was the, Yeah. The, what was it? Wedding dress never worn. Yes, wedding dress never worn. And then going from that into the heart of someone's complex love life or, you know, narrow escape, near miss, whatever you want to call it. That's, that's the beauty. And you're always looking for doorways, aren't we? I'm looking for a doorway into people's lived experience where there aren't too many gatekeepers, where I can just walk through that door and for no other reason, only that somebody has let me in. That's because it's kind of difficult, I think, in media sometimes to get at that genuine lived experience without there being filters. And I think that's increasingly 100%. in today's world. So for me to be able to pursue this as a curiosity first and then to, to put it in a book, and it, it, it was great. It did really well. It really connected. Did you find there was a freedom, though, in that uh, because it was because you were writing it, that you didn't have to worry about them not being too articulate or, you know, because obviously on the flip side of what you're talking about, the convenient thing about you know, interviewing somebody who's in the media or who has a who has a need to be promoting something is that they're they're they they can be forthcoming or they know what they're doing. Whereas when you're stepping into somebody's life, they can be afraid, nervous, resistant. Yeah, but I think the other side of that is that people are coached to death yes. these days in terms, of, and people are super conscious of how they're broadcasting themselves. Yeah, because people are broadcasting themselves every day, and they don't need traditional media sometimes to do that, and they're very well practiced in that. So they're super conscious now of how they're representing themselves, very careful almost. So for me, meeting these people who are in the book, some of them who are really on the fringes and the margins and are living these very detached lives, and the fact that they weren't really conscious or they weren't overcoached or, you know, they didn't... Were they conscious of their own anonymity or no? They were because I gave them that. and, we, and You some, gave them the option. Yeah, and in most cases they took it because they didn't, you know, their families mightn't have known that they had this wedding, which was a complete disaster or... Um, in a couple of cases, they talked about things like in one man, um, his mum was born in a county home. He was uh, born into a mother and baby home, didn't know who his dad was. And he put an ad looking for a dog. So that's how I came across him. And then as we spent time together, it became clear that for him, 
dogs became um, the thing in his life that gave him companionship and gave him emotions that he'd never got from family and never got. So obviously with him, it was anonymous because his family didn't really. Which, of course, is relevant because this documentary has been on the last couple of days. The redress. Well, I've interviewed a lot of people who've gone through institutions over the years. And the redress documentary was fascinating, I thought, because it opened the lid on on the kind of uh, the way people were almost abused again. Because people obviously went through these traumatic, horrible uh, experiences. And then when it came to redress, it was almost like they had to suppress all that again afterwards. Like I would meet people. I met people. By the way, just before you continue, just for our listeners that perhaps haven't been watching, there was a documentary on RT the last couple of nights called Redress, which was all about the, what would you say, the struggle of these people who were abused in institutions in Ireland to get some sort of compensation slash uh, admission from the, the the institutions that abused them. Yeah, and as part of the deal to get compensation, they had to sign a confidentiality clause. So over the years, when I would have interviewed people, I'd say to them, um, how d- did you go for redress? And they'd say, I did. And I'd say, how did you get on? They'd say, I'm not allowed to talk about that. Right. And Like fucking Harvey Weinstein. I, and it was, I remember one guy said to me, well, I can't tell you how much I got and I can't tell you what the experience was like. But he said, off tape, he said something like, it's about the same as a family car. That's what I got. for, And had just told me about the most horrendous experiences he had. And there were people too who, they weren't used to being in that situation. You'd team of solicitors probably across from you, you know. Super intimidating. Very intimidating. So it was almost like they were having to suppress uh, these experiences all over again. And I thought it was a really important documentary series. It's lifted the lid on that. It looked at the deal that was done at the time, which indemnified the religious orders. And uh, I think there's a long way to go on that story. So, so when you were talking to this guy, and you're, you're getting that human story of the fact that it was tough for this guy to trust human beings. Yeah, and he told me about he, he, his, his previous dog. He'd, always had, he'd had dogs for 50 years, and his previous dog had died. And he talked about bringing the dog down to the North Ring Road here in Cork and burying it uh, just off the North Ring Road, erecting a cross, sitting down, having a bottle of wine. It was a lovely, beautiful, you know, memory and moment. And he was just, he, his whole, I think, he he was obviously damaged by the fact that he didn't know his dad. He'd had, anytime he visited his mom, it was in a home. There were religious present and she couldn't talk to him directly about who he was. And he kept asking, you know, who am I? Who's my dad? And she could never deal with that. So he found a companionship in dogs. Yeah. I mean, it is amazing. (laughs) And I guess in a way, if you listen to that story or you read that story and there's this man sitting at the side of a road at a cross having a bottle of wine with his companion, you know, in the ground, I guess people would think that's very sad and that's very lonely. But I assume for him, it's probably... Just his family, you know. It's his family, and he got quite emotional when he was talking about it to me, you know, which was, it was lovely. He was a former member of the Defence Forces, had served in the Congo, um, and he got really emotional. So he was looking for a dog. The other interesting thing about him, he was in his 70s, and he was looking for a dog that was four years of age, and he was very specific about that in his ad in the Echo newspaper. And I was saying to him, well, how, come you're, how come you're looking for a dog of that age? And he said, well, I haven't got a lot of years left, and I don't want to leave a dog behind after me. Wow. So I figure if I buy a dog who's four or five, I might have a chance of outliving the dog and I won't leave the dog behind. Well. So, so that's mortality, isn't it? 
That's mortality, which brings us to what we want to talk about. But it is a lovely sentiment that that would be a concern. I, what I like about that story is that it shows that there is a certain time in your life where you really begin to accept your mortality, yeah. which I've been thinking about a lot because I've lost both parents, uh, which I've talked about loads. But just in a total coincidence, which is not why I asked you to come over here today, you 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 were just at the Marymount Hospice doing a piece for RT Radio One. Yeah, it's going to go out next week on the Sean O'Rourke show. And Marymount Hospice has been in existence for 150 years, set up in Cork. Um, for the care of cancer patients towards the end of their life, 150 years ago, and now it, it, it's in a it's moved from the city centre out to this incredible facility just out near Bishopstown. I've recorded there before. It's an amazing place. You know, it is that cliche they say that people do more living in the last few weeks and months there than they probably did for years previous. Incredible consultant. That's doctor. a cliche. Well, that's what people say. But it's, it's absolutely true. Obviously, um, Doctor Tony O'Brien's the consultant there, Superman. So. I spent a few hours there this morning with a number of patients, um, some of whom have months to live, some of whom hopefully have a couple of years, and with some of the staff. And it's, you know, for me, I get quite emotionally involved in interviews. I'm sort of, I'm an easy crier, which is good. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're sitting there beside someone, I was with an amazing woman a while ago who got her diagnosis relatively recently, like two months ago, and it's not a good diagnosis. So she's looking at maybe four months if she's really, really lucky. And, and she's, sorry, is she living in there now? She's in there for a week at the moment. So about 10% of all the patients there would actually be inpatients. The rest can come and go and you get care in the community and so on. And they set up the structures for you. So about 10% are inpatients. So she's in there, I think, for a week at the moment. And hopefully she'll get home for a bit and back out for a bit. But she was talking to me about how her plot, her grave plot is going to be in her mum and dad's plot in Kinsale. And she doesn't like the headstone that's the, that her mum put up at the moment because she doesn't feel it reflected her dad's life. He was a really outgoing guy. So that's the first practical thing she's been able to do is she's going to get that headstone changed. She's she's a patron of the arts, so she's going to get some stained glass on her headstone. Sounds wow. amazing. But interestingly, you know, with all the interviewees, I obviously would have said to them, you know, what insights have you gained in the last few weeks and months? What has it taught you about life? Have you got regrets? For her, she was saying she's come around in the last few weeks to be grateful almost probably not that she's dying because she doesn't want to leave her family but grateful that she's now in control of her debt like she's able to say she wants Verdi handled she wants uh, a new gravestone she can plan exactly what she wants and she said if, if she got a heart attack she wouldn't be able to plan any of that so she's really grateful for being in control now of her debt well, that's the opening line of the book about my father. The best thing about cancer is time. <laughs> yeah. It lets you yeah. know. It lets you know that now is the time to think about this stuff. You're on the and clock, yeah. In a way, that is a that is a privilege. <clears throat> yeah, you know, I the, mean, the sudden yeah. death. I talked to Brian Dowling. He has a grief podcast. I talked to him two days ago, and his mother died suddenly at 61. And I could tell from the experience that he was having that it leaves you with it leaves you with with a lot of not regret, but it just leaves you with a lot of sense of you've been hard done by. Well, one of my closest friends died three years ago next month, Brian Carey. He was a great musician based in Cork. And he died by suicide. And I knew he'd been struggling for the last year or so, right? I had an idea he'd been struggling. And I have huge guilt around his death. And no matter what anybody says to me, no matter how much work I do on myself, I will always have guilt about his death. Because... I think I should have reached out more in the last few months. I 
I was funny enough, the day he died, I was working near his house and it entered into my head. I said, I might call into Brian. And then I just got busy with work or I got slightly delayed and was pressed for time and I didn't. Now, I probably wouldn't have made any difference. I know that. But I went for a drink with his daughter the other night. She's 18 now. And I think we were both talking about our shared guilt, about the fact that, like, I put across the thing that I'm a quite open person. You know, we've talked a lot about male emotions and all that sort of stuff. And yet here was a guy who was probably one of my closest friends and he died right in front of me from suicide, having had depression, having struggled, having tried to reach out, I'd imagine. And it was I kind of feel like it was on my watch a little bit. So Which that, I, I got to think that people who've lost somebody close to suicide feel that. I don't think you ever, I, I, I don't see how I can ever not have that feeling because it's directly related to how much I cared for him. Yeah. So... That guilt, I think, keeps me honest for the rest of my life. And it, 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 will, it will definitely put me on guard if I see anybody even remotely struggling. Like, I wish I'd, I'd have picked up the phone and said to Brian, are you going to take your own life? You know, how, how bad is it at the moment? How dark are you? Do you f- but you knew that he was struggling with... Yeah, depression. I knew he was struggling. And we did try to reach out and he was getting some help. And maybe in a way, the services that exist probably didn't help him in the way they should have. But, but do you... How healthy do you think is to hold on to that much guilt? Do do you think on some <laughs> No, I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious, do you think on some why do, level... Why do you think I'm running a marathon <laughs> this year? Yeah, why do you think I lost 10 pounds? Grief, grief do that to you, man. But no, but seriously, though. Do, don't... That, that should be the Weight Watchers tagline, shouldn't it? <laughs> when you lose somebody, that's when you lose weight. <laughs> lose somebody, then lose the weight. But uh, no, but on a serious note, I, I wonder, obviously, the motivation of that guilt and the sense of being constantly aware of of mortality and being there for people on some level that's good but on another level do 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 you feel that you could be taken on too much there because it's not your fault possibly could i mean i haven't looked back at my call log to brian i i've looked at our text messages but i haven't looked at you know where you can look and see who dialed who last because i don't want to see if there was a missed call God, your life and my life is very different. That's always when some girls give me a hard time for not being in touch, and I go back and I'm like, "You fucking text me last, bitch," <laughs> or "I text you last." But but uh, but no, but 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 okay. So, so I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that there might have been a missed call the day before or two days before, and I but didn't answer because I was busy or something. And but like, that's about timing, though, because yeah, the truth is he, he that if you went back over three years of texts. There would be any number of times where you or he didn't get back, and that's just normal life. Totally. You can't take and, and, on the responsibility. Yeah, and I think I think the more his depression probably got a hold of him, you know, the the less he was available to me. The less, and I probably got pissed off with that. But now I understand, and now I can see he was, you know, really struggling with this thing, and he'd had depression for twenty years. It's amazing he he, he managed to live as long as he did, probably on one level. Yeah. I should I should focus on that. Yeah, and also you should focus on the fact that you were a good friend, and that. Not that good. Well, Brian... He died. It, yeah, but Brian, in, it, there's a lot of suicide. Yeah, I know. And there's a lot of people with even more important relationships to people that die. Yeah. That probably feel the same guilt as you. And all of them, 100% of them, were completely powerless. I mean, it comes yeah. up a lot on this podcast. You see, I feel a responsibility because I'm quite open. And Brian would have known I'm quite an open person. Wrote the book on drink, whatever, 10 years ago. And talked about that struggle. So... I should have been the person to be receptive to him. It's a bit of, it's a kind of, it, is it a responsibility? I suppose it is a bit of a responsibility. You don't really think about it till afterwards that, oh, okay, yes. I am actually, and, and you, I'm sure you get that a lot, that people do open up to you. 
Yeah, I mean, I have. I've never. I've actually never. I've lost. I've known people that have that have died by suicide, um, including some guy when we were in college. It's funny enough. His name I don't remember, but he wasn't a close I friend. That. The, the, yeah, he was a he was a bit of a Jack the Lad. I remember I'm that. Shocked. It was one of the first ones. Yeah, he was actually the first guy that I a sister of somebody in St. Peter's, uh, you know, died by suicide, and then that guy. Blanket. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. I forgot his name. That's funny. I haven't thought about that. He hanged in a himself long time. by a tr- uh, on a tree because I, I think there were drug issues there. Yeah, right? I remember. I just remember thinking it was the first time I really <clears throat> thought of the coldness and the loneliness of suicide because I imagined his headspace at that time, and he was the he was the first time that it, it came into my life. But anyway, I've never lost anyone close. So I this I have different guilt about things I could have said to my mother and all this kind of stuff. But I, I don't. But I can't the, imagine there was a lot you didn't say. No, but that's. I mean, I did actually do like a quite a long thing, but it's more. It's more to do with just like maybe I could have been a bit more affectionate at the end, you know, despite the the lack of it coming the other way. Blah blah blah. But I've talked about that a lot. I just mean in relation to this, I, I've never held on to <clears throat> what you're holding on to, which I, I would imagine. I got to think that this is common with people who've lost someone close to them by suicide. Yeah, I mean, it was my first experience of unnatural uh, death. I mean, both my grandparents have died and in a way they lived amazingly long lives. My grandfather's death was an amazing death back in the the family farm where he was born, died died in the cottage. So it's the kind of death he probably would have wanted. He was nearly 100. But where Brian, I never grieved like that before in my life. You know, it was... Well, because it's tragic. Tragic, sudden... You know, it's all those emotions. It's I couldn't marry the person. I couldn't marry his final hours with the person I knew. And, and have you ever gone to talk to somebody specifically about the 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 legacy of suicide? Well, I met it on on, on yeah. the friends and the family. Well, I did the typical thing I do, where I went and I made a documentary about. <laughs> That's what I do too. About, <laughs> about his grief, about my grief, and about his life, and about. I, I was so taken aback by grief and I just said I need to I made a documentary about grief so I went and I met Mick Heaney Seamus Heaney's son and I met other people and I, and I just did that to process it you know mm-hmm. so maybe w- what was, was the consensus on the guilt not not your specific guilt but just the the fact that when people are gone there's nothing you can do yeah, there wasn't really a consensus. People seem to have been able to park it a little better than me. Like, it's it's three years on now and I still have that guilt. I haven't driven up by his house since. Uh, like I said, I can't look at the call log on my phone just in case. And so that's, that's, I mean, that's amazing. It felt good. Like, I went for a drink with his daughter the other night and I can be open with her and I could say to her, I feel, you know, it's almost like I was looking for her to say to me, don't worry. I Like, yeah. you know, it wasn't your fault or whatever. But, but she said she felt guilt too. She felt guilt as well. I'm sure she did. Yeah, I don't kind of don't want to put words in her mouth, but no. I think she did. Yeah, she's an amazing. She's doing mental health nursing now. So. There you go. Mm. She dealt with <laughs> everybody has their way. No, because it's it's funny. It's come up on this podcast before, but not guilt in relation to death nor suicide. But it it comes down to that. Well, some people think it's cheesy, but climactic scene in uh, in um, you know with Robin Williams and uh, Matt Damon. Dead Poets Society? No, in uh, Goodwill Hunting. Oh, yeah, sorry. The, the, the bit in the film where Matt Damon breaks down is when Robin Williams makes him repeat that it's not his fault. Yeah. 
And it's funny because it keeps coming up in this podcast, uh, an admission from somebody that they can't let go of the fact that somewhere inside they feel that it's their fault in relation to various things. I think it was more with me. I, uh, uh, along with the guilt, I felt like a total hypocrite because, like I said, I have over my career talked about issues, depression, suicide, obviously, alcohol, male emotions. And I've talked quite openly, uh, you know, when the alcohol book came out, I went on the late late and talked about my relationship with alcohol in Ireland. And so I've always been that person who's talked quite openly about things. And yet here was someone who was very close to me and they didn't feel or I didn't create the conditions or I didn't create the space where they could feel that they could come and say, I'm really struggling here. I need to have a chat about it. So it's that's tough that's because they're an adult and they, you know, yeah, and they, I choose small they kids decide, so. and they decide to to hide. Yeah, you know, you can't, yeah. yeah, you can't play hide and seek without somebody seeking and somebody hiding. And it, you know, it, if you don't know that the guy is hiding, then you're not seeking. That's true. You know, I, so it's not yeah. it's not fair in a way to give yourself such a hard time. But but I completely yeah, I completely understand. It puts you on your guard, though. It really puts me on guard now when I see people struggling. I'm a lot more upfront and I'd be a lot more direct. But can you imagine and this is just a this is just a an academic exercise which I know does never really heals the emotion. But can you imagine the amount of people in mental health that constantly deal with people who are struggling and it is their job to help them. And I would imagine often, I don't have a percentage, those people still die. Yeah, it must be I I can't imagine what it's like to work. I, I remember a consultant psychologist contacting me one time and was struggling with the fact that I think she, they'd gone on holidays and one or two patients had died by suicide. Now, patients, invariably, you're going to have people who will die by suicide when you're in that uh, area of work, but they found the guilt of that really difficult to come yeah. to terms with. So, yeah. So I imagine, yeah, that, that's got to be out there. So when you were in Marymount Hospice, you're having the, the opposite experience to this in that all these people know they're going to die. So there's there's a lack of that that shock. It, it's really, you know, what do you do when you get told you've got X amount of time left? All of them say we don't sweat the small stuff anymore. That's exactly what my dad said. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like they said, things that would have annoyed them, small petty arguments, they're gone. They're gone from their lives. It's it's the people, one of them said to me, it's the people you respect and the people who love you in return. They're the people, that's all that matters in their life now. And everything else is just noise, you know, and a lot of them were saying too the friends they thought they had has quickly sort of disappeared and they're left with this core group of people, which is a lot smaller than you would think. And they're the people you just want to you want to be around all the time. And I think part of that, too, I think is you wouldn't want it too broad because it's tiring, you know, it's really tiring. And, and as well, a couple of the parents I met earlier hadn't really processed it themselves. It was all the concern was about how will this the hurt that their children were going to go through in the months ahead. Oh, they were concerned about their own children's Com- grief and struggles. Completely. And-, and to the point where one woman who was talking to me hasn't really had that conversation with her family, but she was talking to me about how we probably need to have that conversation. You know, we need to grapple it. We need to just deal with it head on here. And she was saying she hasn't really processed it. All her thoughts about it are transferred onto, I don't want this to be something that the kids are going to be weighed down Mm. by. It's interesting because, you know, I'm doing this show about my mom and I'm getting these insane reactions, which I really wasn't expecting. Uh, But one of them was from a a daughter and mother. Well, the whole family came, but 
The mother is dying of cancer. She knows she's dying. It's a fatal diagnosis. And the whole family came to the show. But I believe, my understanding is that they booked the tickets just because it was like, for Christmas, let's get a family ticket to the Des Bishop show. They actually did not buy the ticket knowing that the show was about No way. No way. So they're all there as a family. And my show is very much about my mother's worry throughout her life and how much of a fucking waste that was that's very much the strong image at the end and the daughter messaged me to say that my mother turned to me at the end of the show and she said i'm just not going to worry anymore mm-hmm. i know that you guys are going to be okay amazing which killed me my God. <laughs> it killed me yeah. but i love the fact that which is funny that you're mentioning this because this is a thing that people do they worry about their children yeah and that I mean, I'm sure it didn't last, but at that moment in time after the show. But it was nice that the mother got a whatever the show did, it gave her a window to say that to the to the daughter. And we don't worry. The kids, I've been through it twice. Like, we don't worry. We know we're gonna be okay. But I know that that's there in the in the parents. Because I suppose it is the most heartbreaking thing you can inflict on your kids is your death, isn't it? And, and but you, and- you you balance that out with their very existence being because of you. <laughs> okay, yeah. And they're going to you, carry on. You don't the get, bastards. <laughs> you don't get one without the other. But that's the beauty of it, you know? Yeah. That's the yin and the yang of it, you know? the the. But that's what I see. That's what I love about what you're doing, going up there. Because as I said to you before we turned on the mics, I, I, I nearly pitched to the Irish Times an idea of a podcast series, literally just an interview series, which is what you were doing, of, of chatting to people in hospices about mainly about their life, not just focusing on the death, but getting them at a time where they're probably at the best understanding of what their life means. Completely. Their testimonies are so true. Alan Gilson made a fantastic documentary series, one-off documentary, I think, on a hospice a number of years ago, and it always stayed with me. Really? Amazing insights. And I could have made two or three hours of radio on what I got this morning. It's just incredible insights. And people, for no other reason, they're just... Honest, you know, they're brutally honest and the masks are, are gone and they're just sitting on the side of the bed knowing that they're in the departure lounge, to use that cliche. Now, um, just 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 as a more promo so that RT don't get mad at me, when do you think that piece is going to be on? It's going to be on next week sometime. You, you do all your stuff on the Sean O'Rourke show, right? Exactly. So We'll podcast it after. I'll send you a oh, link. Oh, yeah, great. I'll put yeah, up the yeah. link. But um, you did mention, which I thought was very interesting, that... Uh, that, was there some nurse, some, some nurse had posted the 20 regrets that people have? It was an article that appeared in The Guardian a couple of years ago. It was like top 10 regrets of the dying that one nurse had noticed. Do you, do you, do I, I know we haven't looked back. Do you have any memories of I the, can't remember exactly what they were. Uh, I should Google it, should I? Uh, I, I should Google it, really, but I'm just being lazy. <laughs> but again, it was like, don't sweat the small stuff. Um, you know, material things don't matter. And... Um, the one regret one of the women had this morning was she's really well traveled, really into the arts. Looks, she's seventy five. Looks to me like she'd lived an extraordinary life. And this year was to be the year that she was going to go to Saint Petersburg and she was going to go and see the Bolshoi Ballet in their natural setting. And she knows now she can't ever do that. And that was her regret. But she said at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It's, it reminds me of the Nula Fuelon interview with Marion Fanukin, which was an extraordinary interview where Nula talked about towards the end of her life, all those things that had given her incredible pleasure, it was gone. You know, she, and that was, I think, I mean, I met Nula once or twice, but I think for her that, that was 
the harrowing aspect of of n- realizing the things that had given her so much pleasure the pleasure was gone from it because she realized the tragedy of life really i mean life's pretty fucking tragic isn't it on on, it, it on, is. a, on a, i don't want to depress everybody but uh, like i have a 5 year old son at the moment and he's asking me about debt a lot and he's just come to the realization that he's that we're probably going to be gone before him Oh, he realizes that. Well, he's kind of saying, so who's going to die first? Really? I find it such a hard question to answer. Do you use heaven and all that? Do you use the outs? Well, we're not religious. So we say some people believe this and some people believe that. And, you know, I don't really believe anything. But your dad is a morbid atheist and (laughs) he believes that when it's over, it's over. (laughs) Like his friend does. (laughs) So so I'm just curious because I love love when parents tell me, because that seems to be the age, I guess, five, you know? Yeah, it's amazing he just started talking about it. I find it difficult to engage with it because you're engaging with, like I said, the absolute tragedy of life, you know, is the fact that, yeah, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, kid, but you're not around forever. <laughs> Except that the it's only tragic in the sense that we, we, we think it's unfair. But, I mean, it's always there. Yeah, you, know? you can't avoid it. Yeah. So so you just you give him the some people believe this some people believe that. Did he did he pick one? <laughs> no, I think he's hedging his bets. He actually said sometimes I believe in heaven, sometimes I don't because he's in a Catholic school even though he's non-religious, you know, but yeah. Oh, he is in a Catholic school. Yeah, it's a local school, so. Yeah, so I would assume that in general he's going to soak up the Yeah, he, he's going to go with um Yeah, and we sort of we we chat to him in the evenings and so on, you know, and um I just, yeah, it's a sort of a balancing act again. I want him to have respect for the fact that people may believe. And he hasn't lost anybody yet, right? He hasn't lost anybody yet, no. No, because I guess that'll... Yeah. But I remember I lost, we had a guy that lived in our basement. When my parents bought our house in 1978, uh, there was an illegal tenant in the basement from the previous owner. (laughs) And, uh, because you weren't allowed, it's a one family house. It's an illegal rental. And... um, the, the realtor said, here's the thing, this guy is down there. And I think my parents must have met him or whatever, but they just said, it's fine, L- leave him there. Joe, Joe Ruggiero was his name. And uh, he came, he became our grandfather. Both our grandfathers were dead. Wow. And he was this amazing guy and looked after us a lot, lived in our basement. And uh, I was an altar boy by the time he died. And I, sir, I, I, I was the altar boy at his funeral. No way. But I, I cried hard. But I remember that was the first time that I was aware of death. Yeah, and I had like I had an experience, um, and our family had an experience where a young cousin of ours own died. He just uh, about eight months ago, he was 30, 30 years of age, thirty one years of age, and he got killed on a bicycle in Scotland. So that was a completely different type of grief, obviously. Uh, where it was, I found that I found myself angry at that. Just senseless because he was a really careful guy. So I've had those ways of grief, like my grandparents, where it was a grief for their life, but for my childhood. So I grieved as much the fact that I moved so far away from that childhood and that childhood was gone. They died. That generation was gone. So that was that grief. It was a different type of grief. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, my my grandmother, I was close with her and she died. And but none none of that compares to the biggies, like losing a friend to suicide or. You know, like losing my grandmother, I just it just to me is a sad memory. Yeah, it's, it, it wasn't like a seismic shift for me or anything. Yeah, not 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 like uh, not like my folks, but um, I, I just on a just to change the subject because one of the other uh, well, no, I mean 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Not in, a, not in a bad way or an unprofessional way, but uh, this podcast talks about death a lot. I think I feel like I've, my poor listeners have been bombarded. <laughs> yeah. the, the, they'll, they'll have a better understanding of death than the average person. But, uh, you know, before we, before we go... You know, I mean, I knew you in college, but I think I've gotten to know you better in the years since you stopped drinking. Yeah, that became yeah. like a sort of a yeah, yeah, one of our little. Because I think you had stopped. By I stopped when I we were in college. I can remember meeting you in the Thirsty Scholar on, which is on off Washington Street. You were probably eighteen, nineteen, nineteen, maybe. Well, I stopped drinking when I was nineteen. I mean, I I think, I think you that, were drinking then, actually. Yeah, I, I mean, just before we, you were. You and I were in first year together. Right? You started in ninety four, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure that I, I knew you then. It was like a Christmas time, and it was, uh, I think, I, I just remember having a load of vouchers for free drinks, and I can remember you running in and out of the bathroom. What were you doing? Well, it wasn't Coke. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't around then. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, no, but I mean, I, I, uh, I'm pretty sure that I knew you in that first year, which was my final year of drinking. But then the rest of my time, and, and the largest majority of my friends that I know from UCC, uh, come from the, uh, a post-drinking time, but I don't. I didn't have a distinct memory of you being big into the booze or anything. Yeah, I just remember the the, the mutual friends that we had and different things. But but it was great for me when I got sober, knowing that you had been sober for a good few years at that stage, maybe eight or nine years or something. Yeah. When did you stop drinking? When I was twenty-seven. So yeah, yeah, eight years. Yeah, so it was great for me knowing that, okay, it's actually possible because there weren't too many reference points in terms of people living that time, yeah. sober lives, young. Or you fun know? lives. Yeah, there wasn't. And even when I came out of rehab, I was 27, 28 and trying to socialize. It was it was such a hard place, Ireland, then to be sober, I thought. I think it's much easier now. Yeah, which is funny because even like the other day, I put up this jokey song, Cork in the 90s, you know. Yeah, I was listening to it this morning. It's a bit of crack, right? Yeah, yeah. But the majority of those memories are actually sober memories because even though I did do E in Henry's, 80% of my time in Henry's was done after I stopped drinking. In fact, I feel like in a way that was an easier time to stop drinking because people actually drank less. They took more drugs. And Henry's was actually a pretty good place to be sober. No Havana's isn't. <laughs> no, but Havana's, you know, like like the way, a lot of the way that people socialize now, because, you know, rave was very mainstream then. I know that there's like, you know, there's scenes of that now, but it was it was quite normal to just go there at that time. So I was kind of, I was kind of lucky, I feel, because myself and my sober buddies, my clean buddies would just go there and just dance for three hours. And Brilliant. Yeah. And you go home. It was like going to the gym. Couldn't do that now, maybe. I just, yeah, but it's just different. But anyway, you, the, the, the other problem is you stop drinking 27 or 28, so you have even more habits. You know, there's more triggers. Yeah, and I 
I I was quite public about sobriety. I wrote at an that art- time. Yeah, and I wrote an article for the Irish Times about two or three years after I got out of rehab. Again, trying to process that. I feel like when I go back over my life, moments of crisis, I tend to try and process them publicly. And it was really, I wrote a piece just about what it was like to be sober, young, trying to re-engage with Irish society. Very simple. Yes. And from that then I wrote a book. And the book is a little bit about my time in rehab, but really about Ireland's dysfunctional relationship. I mean, that that was a time when you said had Arthur's Day, this corporate celebration yes. of the rela- our relationship with Guinness. Yeah, and we talked about it on the, yeah, the had, Under the Influence. We did that yeah. piece on Under the Influence. So with, you had all that stuff where it was sort of on the surface, but people weren't really engaged with it. And um, I have a weird relationship with that book now where I think I've never read, I haven't read it since. You haven't gone back to it? I haven't because I feel, I feel I was a bit too open or it was a bit too, it was very soon after I got sober. And I feel like almost like I did my counseling in that book very publicly. Yes. And it's kind of out there. And you can never really take that back. And okay, I know it's helped people and people will still tell me, you know, I read your book in rehab or I gave it to my uncle and it's got him off to drink or whatever. That's great. But for me, I have a funny kind of a relationship with it in that sobriety sense. I mean, it's been 15 years now and it I don't have to think too much about it. You know, mm. It's just become it's really... It's not a big presence in your life. It's not a presence at all, you know. But it's kind of everything in those early days. And yeah. it's funny you should mention that because... Well, I stopped drinking when I was 19. I was very involved in the fellowships and all that. I was very, very, very into all that. And uh, I didn't start doing comedy until I was 21. I was a year and a half actually off the booze when I started doing comedy. I and thought I-, I remember you telling a joke in Gorby's nightclub one night we were in. And if you told a joke, you got a free bottle of Carling or something. No, yeah, that was the joke competition. You got a free bottle. Uh, I remember but, being... But I, 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 I used to win those, but I never drank the booze. Ah. I would just give the booze to somebody else. But that was 97. Okay. That's actually how I got into comedy was the those Gorby's competitions. And then the guy was like, I think you should try to do it for real. But anyway, uh, it was a big thing for us to be anonymous back in those days. And I remember I had quite a strong sobriety by the time I would ever think about talking publicly about any of this. And when Russell Brand got clean, because I saw Russell Brand on stage in Edinburgh out of his mind, strung out on heroin and he was a mess and I was like that's that fucking asshole from MTV what a dick and very shortly after that he got clean now I don't know him this isn't like a name drop I've met him but I don't I don't know him and he got clean and very quickly he did a show in Edinburgh about getting clean and I remember thinking this is not healthy now I didn't think he'd make it through as it turns out he's now Mr. Recovery (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. he's literally the public face of recovery (laughs) but at the time I remember thinking he's not going to make it because you can't be this you can't be this public and trivialize the whole thing in the way that he was doing. But I haven't followed that advice for any other huge aspect of my life in that both of my parents' deaths I've turned into uh, into shows. And then I did end up talking quite publicly about my booze uh, booze experience in Under the Influence. So I don't know if it's positive or negative, but I remember thinking that you shouldn't do that that early in the game like you did. Yeah, I was a bit soon into it, wasn't I? I was like maybe two or three, three years in. The book, but then well, you never well, get the rawness then. The book came out five years after I came out of rehab. Um, I'll tell you a funny story when I was walking into rehab. So I was, whatever, 27. And it, obviously the years leading up to going into rehab weren't funny, caused a lot of hurt to people around me. But I was walking in into rehab and it was down in West Cork, Tabor Lodge, and super fantastic people. I've been in and out since. and I, 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 They're just super, turned my life around. But I was walking in the door anyway and a guy was standing outside and he kind of 
came, called me over whispering and he said, uh, so what, what are you in for? And I said, uh, drink really, it's just a drink. And he said, what about the drugs? And I said, well, it wouldn't be my main, you know, thing. And uh, he said, what about gambling? Would you gamble? And I said, well, I'd, I'd bet on the gold cup every year, like five euro. And he said, don't tell him. And I said, <laughs> I said, what do you mean? Don't tell him. He said, he said, I came in here with uh, one addiction. I have two now and they're not finished yet. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I think with him, gambling was his thing. And uh, he used to have the odd gin and tonic or a Friday or Saturday night. Oh, and they got, the, they got him on the booze. He's an alcoholic, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, so it was funny. But, um, and rehab is like, you know, you've been through it. It's quite an amazing cathartic experience if you, if you just offload and, yeah. and leave everything. Use the time. But um, yeah, I have a funny relationship with that book. It's 10 years Ten years ago, I wrote it, and maybe I was a bit too public. Yes, yes, and yeah. Know? Who knows, though? You know, because it's just like everybody, when they think back to whatever they were doing when the, ten years ago, probably has some regrets. Yeah. So, you know, say when we do the shift, there's there's been some people that say like I was too promiscuous when I was younger, or the opposite. I yeah. wish I had fucking banged more people, you know? So, like, it is very easy to look back on 10 years before and wish you'd done something differently. I mean, in terms of Under the Influence, which was 2012, you know, I, I, I sometimes wish that, like, I, I didn't do it in the sense that I think it's a good series, but I also just kind of think, like, ah, fucking who, who needs to become the public face of being critical of Ireland's relationship with alcohol? And you become you know? the go-to person, don't you? Like, you do. every time there was a drink conversation, it felt for years, you would get the call. And uh, I, yeah, it got to a point now, like in the last five years, I haven't done a whole lot on it. But it's gotten a lot better, honestly, you know? But there wasn't that gym-going culture. There wasn't, yes. obviously, the range of non-alcoholic drinks. And I know some people who are in recovery feel that even yes. by me drinking non-alcoholic drinks, I've crossed the line. But, but it, that, that, you know, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, what, were, what was presented to me as facts in recovery have no scientific basis whatsoever. So... It's it's it, you know there's no need to be too worried about somebody from recovery saying oh a non-alcoholic booze is a, is a is step up now I don't drink it but that's just because I have no interest in drinking it yeah but it is funny how some of these things that they say they act like they really matter which is just I suppose it's hard it, it, it's easier to have a kind of a one size fits all in a way isn't it? yeah yeah hundred percent I mean I wouldn't be critical of it because it works for 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 a hell of a lot of people but. the only other story I remember from my recovery which really gave me an insight into an Ireland into Ireland is about a year year and a half. After I got sober, I was in um, Corner House Bar, which is a bar I used to still go into when I came out of rehab because they were just really good to me. It was late in the evening. I was talking to a girl and I thought we were getting on great. And she, towards the end of the night, said to me, geez, imagine how much crack you were when you were drinking. And <laughs> that's been said to me many times, really? but it's, many times. It's such a weird thing. It's it's such an Irish thing. I think it's like, OK, I'm enjoying your company now, but geez, it would be so much better if you were as hammered as I am. Yeah. But really, it's just what I would prefer is if you weren't reminding me that my behavior is probably problematic. <laughs> that's that's probably what was going on there, which is often the case. I think it's know? easier now, though. Well, it's easier, I think, when you get older, too, because all my buddies like from college, have all, we've all come back to similar enough behavior. They still drink, but they don't drink that often. Yeah. Or as is the case, I'm sure you've noticed with a lot of people our age, is they have like these one or two massive blowouts every year yeah. where they do fucking everything. <laughs> they, do, they do the whole enchilada, get the kids with the grandparents and then fucking let loose and then come back to reality, you know? But no, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of other alternatives. But I just wanted to, to ask, because we, we've both been not drinking for quite a long time. And I talked with Joanne McNally recently. And the only thing that I really feel 
that that you would miss in that I don't miss it, but you would definitely notice it's an inconvenience is in new social situations. Like when I started gigging in the States and I'm meeting all these new people, it, it it's handy to be able to drink. Like there are times yeah. where it's inconvenient. And we're both in sectors where there is a lot of, there's an assumption you're going to drink, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, maybe there is in social settings anyway, but I think in media or in comedy or in stand-up or entertainment or in journalism, there is that assumption that, oh yeah, well, let's go and have a few drinks. And particularly if you're Irish, when I was doing work overseas as an Irish journalist, couldn't get their heads around the fact that you wouldn't have a drink. And yeah, yeah, that's where I find the non-alcoholic beers easier because it, you don't stand out as much, you know. Yeah, you just it's interesting. Have, I have a glass of alcoholic or I have a bottle of beer. And funny, I've done a few reports recently. I did a report in a bar in Limerick two Christmases ago where they sold, uh, last Christmas, sorry, where they sold more non-alcoholic than alcoholic. Really? And I just, and I was in actually at Christmas time, I was out there, I only went out, out to a bar once this Christmas and it was to a 40, it was great 40. But the barman had Heineken Zero on ta- on tap, you know, he had it like on draft. And I said, really? oh. I said, I'll have a glass of, I'll have a, whatever, a pint of Heineken Zero on draft. And he said, would you believe uh, I've only got probably a glass of it left and that. He said, I got 15 kegs in over Christmas and they're gone. Is so that right? It, it's the fastest growing drinks market in Europe. Is the wow. non-alcoholic. So. Because I'm waiting for a good non-alcoholic stout. I, I tried one. What did I try? I tried one of them, which wasn't great. But so that has. Because I drink the, 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 the nitro cold brew. Oh, yeah. Which are fantastic. They're quite like a Guinness. I mean, it's a nitrogen So thing. that's made it a lot easier in social settings. All right. So you go for the non-alcoholics. Yeah. That's huh. made it a lot easier. Well, my understanding is that they're all better now because they don't boil them anymore. They found a new method. They found a new method of taking the alcohol out, which is why they've started to be a, a tastier drink. Yeah. The issue I have with them is they're the same price as the alcoholics and they're not playing the excise. So somebody is making an absolute killing. Oh. Spot the journalist. Making a killing. I did a report on it. Oh, really? When I was in a bar at Christmas two years ago, and I, and I got an Erdinger non-alcoholic, and it was the same price pretty much. So I just did a report, because one person was telling me, oh, it's the brewery, you know, they're hammering us, and then the brewery was saying, no, we're not. <laughs> and and, and y- y- you don't find the, the trigger, you don't find that the, the flavor brings back like a euphoric recall or anything? Like I could have, I, I think there's two bottles in the fridge at home, and they've been there for about two months. So I'm not reaching for it. No, no, I know, but I mean, like, when you have one. Oh, when I have one. very rarely, I, every now and then, I'll get a whiff of a drink, or, like, I'll be I'll buying a drink for somebody, so I'll just have a smell. You know, I'll, I'll have a sniff, see what it smells like. And the smell of it, I do automatically get taken back, funnily enough, to my adolescence, which is the only time I drank, but it, I just think about the first times I drank. It just takes me back to the... It doesn't... Because it's been 25 years. Yeah, it doesn't really, like, say Christmas Day, so we'd had people over for Christmas Day... I had a bottle of... Now, I know people who are in recovery and who are working in the sector are going to be listening to me now saying he's, la- he's relapsed, he's relapsed. Yeah. But I had a bottle of non-alcoholic Prosecco. All <laughs> oh, right, yeah. When we were serving it. And then we had non-alcoholic red wine. And then we had a non-alcoholic beer afterwards. What's the non-alcoholic red wine? Natureo, it's called. It's a, it's a brand of non-alcoholic wines. So it's, you get that smell, you get the taste, but it's obviously no alcohol. Now, that was Christmas Day. I wouldn't, I haven't had it since, but I don't, I don't, do I get a yearning for, I could, I just, I don't think I do. No, it's not a trigger. That's, I was just curious to know. How would I know if it was a trigger, if I went from that to? Well, no, I guess if, if, if you take that sip and then suddenly you just feel like I want more, you know? Yeah. Which you, you, you don't have. I don't really know, but it does, um, I like having one in the fridge on a Friday night, maybe once a month and just sit there and go, 
I feel kind of normal now again. Well, it's just a drink, you know. <laughs> no, <I joke>. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is just a drink like any other, yeah, yeah. really. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah that's, that's interesting. Yeah, because I've noticed more and more of the non-alcoholic stuff being around, but I've never really felt too much of a too much of a yearning to have them. But I was never a big, because I stopped so young, I don't, I don't really have the graw for the, other than stout. Like if there was a good, if there was a genuinely creamy pint of stout that had no alcohol in it, I would drink it because I genuinely loved a pint of stout. I guarantee you that's coming because draft is... It has the, to be creamy. Draft is the, the next big move and non-alcoholic. I, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely, the, it's 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 what's coming down the tracks. I, I think... It might the, shut the fucking Healy Rays up too, <laughs> you know, which would be, make I, me more, more than happy. I think the lucky thing for me and maybe for you was that I could make a distinction very quickly between life with alcohol and life without. And a lot of the people I would have seen who've struggled continuously in their sobriety over the years, life hadn't changed hugely from yes, that's drinking tough. to after drinking. So for me, career took off. I got a fantastic relationship. Um, you know, the material things, I got a decent house, all of that stuff fell into place quite quickly, to be honest with you. So it was very easy for you to associate everything about this. No brainer, no brainer. I looked at this life, I looked at the life previously where I was going from couch to couch, owed money left, right and centre, relationships Stress, disaster, anxiety. All of that stuff, couldn't look at myself in the mirror. And it, it was sort of a no brainer really to not drink again. If I just didn't do this one thing, all of that other stuff would stay away and I would have this you know, really good life. Now, obviously, there are ups and downs and all the rest of it. Um, but so I was very lucky, I think, that I could make that distinction. A lot of people I know, like there was 18 people in rehab with me. I, I'm not sure how many are dead now, but I would say quite a good high percent, maybe five, six are dead of that 18. And in terms of how many stayed clean or sober, I would imagine three. Yeah, I mean, the percentages are low, actually. I was looking at it recently because there's all this like negative against against the AA. You know, there's like oh, so much stuff out there. But the funny thing is that when people are critical of AA, they, they put them under real tight scientific scrutiny for their results. Uh, but then they don't seem to have the same results for other people. And that they talk a lot about how there are other successes other than continuous sobriety in that if somebody decreases their alcohol consumption by 70%, that's considered a good outcome. In, in, you know, in other scientific studies. Yeah, and I went to AA one or two meetings before I ever got sober, maybe two or two years before. And at some point, it obviously planted a seed, you know, and then a year later, I went back and did one meeting. I think I can remember doing one on St. Patrick's Hill and listening and then walking away again. And then when I got back in to rehab, my parents intervened, went into rehab and obviously there's AA meetings in rehab. It felt fine, you know. Yeah. So it took two or three goals to get there. Yeah. Um, but I was, but the success rates are low for all the different options. Yeah, and they're they're, they're constantly evolving. You know, ways to get better outcomes. They're and, looking and at longer. I think the twenty eight day model is probably a bit redundant now. It needs to be yeah, six weeks and that and 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 well, you know, they're the Sinclair method. You know, the 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 tablet that takes away the craving and different things. But I think in the end, the numbers are going to end up being pretty similar. I think it's like. Approximately thirty percent of people who present really get like a like a like a good outcome. Maybe not a hundred percent total sobriety, but they get like a good outcome. But don't quote me on those numbers. Yeah, it, it, I mean, I've had lots of people over the years, lots of families who've co- got in touch and worried about loved ones, and I've gone a bit of the journey with them to try and get them into rehab. And it, I mean, it is that thing unless they really want it, it's impossible. I've driven people to rehab centers. I've brought them into assessments. 
and you, it is down to the individual if they don't engage with it if they don't really want it there is a lot of societal pressure there's a lot of people who just cannot imagine uh, cannot imagine going on holidays can't imagine having sex sober can't imagine I know and I, I was very bad at having sex drunk <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine being drunk and getting an erection <laughs> In fact, every now and then I think, well, I have a drink and I'm like, nah, fuck that. I like my boners too much. <laughs> I mean, I'm only joking, but anyway. Uh, well, anyway, listen, man, we've been chatting for ages, so I'll let you get back to your life. Plug the book again. The book is called... fresh out. Yeah, thanks, man. It's called The Personals, The Human Stories Behind the Small Ads. I'm doing the Innis Book Festival on Friday, four o'clock. I think it's sold out, actually, or it's about to sell out, which is great. Come back home, Dennis. And... Um, the book's published by published by HarperCollins. So, what's your it. social medias? O'Connell Bryan is on Twitter, and that's it, really. I you mean, you don't have Instagram. I have it, but I have it closed off. You know, it's like private. Oh, it's like private. Yeah. yeah. So Twitter is the best place. Twitter to get is the you. best place, and DM dude, go out and buy the, go out and buy the book. It's very very interesting. It's it's good as well for like even though I I don't know if it's an insult to say coffee table book, but no, no, you can dip in and out. You can dip in and out of yeah, it. It's yeah, great yeah. next to the toilet. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just wash your hands. Yeah. Every bathroom should have one. Yeah, exactly, because it's like you can you can dip into a story, and as you can see from the chat that we had, that it ha- you know, it, it it it's a it's a it's a it's a novel idea for getting into something that's actually way more deep than the the yeah. sort of the quirkiness of the the gimmick or the the hook suggests. They're just know? doorways. Yeah, exactly. They're just doorways. Brian O'Connell. <laughs> Cheers, Dad. Thanks. So, thanks very much to Brian. Wonderful chat. Um, I, I I did something different to what I would normally do today. I I did a preliminary edit and then I just sent it to my phone and went for a walk to a coffee shop on Barrack Street just to have a listen, just to see was there, you know, any mistakes. Sometimes I'm more aware than others of times where I need to cut stuff out, and I had done, I had done the. And when I say cut stuff out, I just mean. For example, my phone went off at one stage. I had to get up. Things that just needed to be cut out. Um, but because the, sh- the chat was so intense, sometimes I'm I'm less aware than normal of when I think back, oh yeah, I need to get that or something fell on the floor there. So I said, let me have a listen. And while I was listening, I, I really... I, I, I really was was so deep in it you know, the things that Brian was saying. And I couldn't help but think about this, this thing of it's not your fault. Now I, I know that perhaps I'm focusing on something that's not as deep as it seems, but I feel like so many people struggle with that, including myself over the years when I would go to therapy, you know, it's so hard to give yourself a break why do we feel like we need to hold on to this sense that it's our fault how does that stay with us and I'm, I'm not directly relating it back to what Brian was saying even though there was a resistance to letting it go and I, I wonder if there's people in the world of psychoanalysis therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy that could message me and tell me if this is a recurring theme. Because even in my 
recovery days, I, I really feel like there comes a time where everybody, like people that I used to sponsor, there would come a moment where they would resist forgiving themselves, letting go of the shame, realizing that they're they're not bad people. You know, there would there would there would be a resistance. You know, and even though it seems like some sort of self-help mumbo-jumbo, it's almost like that resistance that you would have to look in the mirror and say, you're a good person. And I think there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a shame that can, that can, that can reside for, for too long. I mean, in Brian's case, it's easy to understand this, this holding on to the guilt. It, 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 it's, it's, very, it's almost rational because it's, 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 it's a wanting to have done something more. I think a lot of people probably identify in so many areas of their lives this sense of not wanting to admit that it's not your fault or even deeper to to forgive yourself to believe deep down inside that you're a good person that you're not a fraud I think sometimes it can be hard for people to to, to believe it on a deep level. And and I would love to talk to somebody in that world if that is a common place that people get to. And was there actually something deeper in that moment with Robin Williams and Matt Damon? Was that actually a thing that people struggle with? Is that the moment where the floodgates open? Is that the the door that people are afraid to open? If you if you know about that, please get back to me. But either way, I thought it was a fantastic chat. And I really enjoyed it. And, you know, it just so happens that this podcast tends to be deep. It wasn't intended. The Des Bishop Podcast wasn't created to be as deep as it's become. Maybe it's just time, the timing of it. You know, that I'm... Um, I'm grieving, so there's been some heavy chats, a sort of a a perfect storm of post-Me Too masculinity, loss, maturity, middle age, a, a, a sincere concoction of honesty that uh, pervades throughout recent episodes. But all I can tell you is I, I, I just, I'm just riddled with emotion these days anyway. So we might as well, we might as well talk about it, you know. Today especially, I don't know what is going on today. Hilariously, it began, it, it kicked off halfway through the Love is Blind reunion episode. Which is so silly, but so true. Why that was the moment, I don't know, but like a like a ball of anxiety just dropped on me. And it's been there in my chest ever since. And it it I know I'm doing the show tonight and I haven't I only did one last week, so I've only done one in the last two weeks. Because I Kevin wasn't really like me a mama. So 
I know it's a little bit connected to that. And it's definitely connected to fears around the coronavirus, which are very selfish. I just don't want it to affect my tour. And I don't want it to affect the world economy. But the thing about this anxiety is it just, it feels like, like, like I'm, like it's close to tears or something, you know? So I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's actually that I'm anxious or actually that I'm just on the verge of crying and that I have such a resistance mechanism to that, even though I've cried plenty. Uh, it's just there. And, and, and it's not related to the chat with Brian because actually, well, well, it could be in that I listened to it earlier today, but it was, it was a while after that. I haven't even just listened to it now. You guys just listened to it. I'm doing this a number of hours later because I watched the Love is Blind reunion. I went for lunch, had a nap, and uh, I played golf on my phone. So I'm, I'm, I'm not immediately reacting to what you just heard. Anyway, it's there. It's in my chest where it always is. The anxiety, you know? But, uh, I'll be on stage tonight and it's coming out no matter what. I'll have to try to channel it into my performance. Um, anyway, I better go. Thank you so much for listening. As always, subscribe. Give us five stars in iTunes. Spread the word. I dropped two episodes on The Shift in the last few days, so I'm sure if you're a listener of both podcasts, you might be a little sick of me. So make sure you spread the word about this too, because obviously they're quite different, and God knows they're they're real different nowadays. Um, also, you know, don't be afraid to send me a DM on Instagram, at Des Bishop. Uh, I appreciate the feedback. Um, and I would be curious to know if everybody's okay with the, the, the depth that we have here at the moment on the Des Bishop podcast. Is everybody all right with that? You know, I mean, if it's too much, just let me know at Des Bishop on Twitter also. Facebook.com forward slash Des Bishop. And uh, we'll chat to you next week. I hope that your Thursday evening or your Friday morning or whenever you listen to this is nice. And I hope that the coronavirus panic subsides and we can all just get on with our lives. Because other than the fact that the market tanking might help Trump to not be reelected, there's nothing good coming out of the chaos that this virus is bringing. So thank you so much, guys. Have a nice day. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.